Greetings, friends. Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast where good taste and bad taste make a sound effect. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I am a film critic. I've been uh, reviewing films for the better part of 20 years now. Would you like uh, would you like to share a pipe with me and hear stories of Lake Placid? Children, don't smoke. No, don't smoke. But do watch Lake Placid. It's quite good. My name is William Bibiani. <laughs> I'm a film critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. And yeah, this is Critically Acclaimed, where we review new movies and also do the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club, where we take advantage of our uh, now entirely streaming film environment uh, to make sure we miss uh, we don't miss some of the older movies that are currently available on these various services. Mm-hmm. So this week on Critically Acclaimed, we are reviewing a ton of new stuff. We're reviewing The Happiest Season Hillbilly Elegy, Lover's Rock, Zappa, Porno, that's the name of a movie, don't get too excited, uh, and The Christmas House. And we will also be reviewing on the critically acclaimed streaming club, because our patrons demanded it, uh, a film by Cheryl Dunyer on Ovid.tv. It is considered the first feature film directed by a black lesbian. Uh, It is The Watermelon Woman. And uh, spoiler alert, I am so glad I saw this movie. (laughs) I I really dug this movie. this, This feels like a I, I filled in a gap. Something was missing in my film education. I'm really glad I caught up with the water, watermelon woman. Uh, I put my foot down with Ovid TV. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, we, Whitney, we, we, Whitney, we were... Whitney was very, 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 very mad at me. <laughs> well, we the week before we had done Tubi, and the week before that we had done Netflix. Now, Tubi and Netflix... Fine services each. Mm-hmm. They have uh, their strengths, and uh, to, to be in particular is actually, pretty awesome. Actually, before actually it was the HBO Max. Oh, excuse me, you're right. It was, it was, it was HBO, HBO Max. Max and Tubi. Uh, also, a fine service. I like all, HBO Max. Also, quite yeah, a bit. in terms of their their film catalogs, but uh, y'all listeners picked like the worst films on both of those lists, and both of them were my <laughs> idea. I kind of put them in as a joke, and in a row. They picked, bless our patrons, they picked Wild Wild West, which was as bad as you've heard, and Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter, which is as bad as you haven't heard. Yeah. Uh, so I said, you know what, we're, we're going full bore our house now. Yeah. And uh, Ovid.tv is a streaming service that does just art house stuff. Yeah. It, Exclusively. Exclusive art house stuff. Uh, their, their stock and trade is not... Is not stuff you've heard of necessarily. It's like the stuff you heard of was playing at the local museum it's or a, university. I, I went through every single thing on their service, and uh, there were only about maybe 20 films I'd heard of. <laughs> and I consider myself reasonably knowledgeable of cinema. Mm-hmm. And so it was really cool to see the streaming service dedicated to stuff that hadn't, you know, found its way into my field of vision. So that was very exciting. Uh, I, I put a Love Diaz film on the list. Mm-hmm. Love Diaz is notorious for making very long films. A Filipino filmmaker uh, makes very long movies. I think Love Diaz's shortest film is like three hours and 58 minutes. I chose one that was like five hours and 45 minutes. You could have done that. Uh-huh. I would have done it. I would have sat through that that sucker, but instead yeah. you chose the watermelon woman, and I'm not complaining. Yeah. However, next week it will also be an all Whitney affair, mm. uh, and we will talk about those films when we get to that. Before we move on to our uh, new releases, uh, we do want to talk about uh, sad news in the entertainment industry. Uh, we have lost um, an actor who played one of the most iconic characters in film history, even though a lot of people may not know his name. Uh, His name is David Prowse, and he was the body of Darth Vader 
mm-hmm. before they added James Earl Jones's voice. Uh, he was on there the set the whole time. He gave the entire performance, and then they changed his voice in post. Uh, he uh, and uh, from what I understand, uh, George Lucas never wanted his voice, but he didn't communicate that to David Prowse. So David Prowse was a little miffed when he first learned that his voice was going to be replaced. Yeah, so I, we don't hear yeah. his voice and we don't see his face. It's just his body movements that we get yeah. to see. David Prowse is actually a very prolific actor. He's pretty mm. much only famous for being in Star Wars, and hey, that's a good pedigree. If that's the only thing he ever did, that would be enough. Well, and also A Clockwork Orange. He played. A, he was in A Clockwork Orange. He played the uh, bodybuilding uh, personal assistant of one of Alex DeLarge's victims. Mm. Uh, which is an also a noteworthy role, but he he was a very large man. He was six foot six, uh, and he was a I believe was a bodybuilder. And so he actually many years before Star Wars, he started acting in movies, often playing strong men or monsters. And in fact, he actually played the Frankenstein monster on multiple occasions oh, in, nice. in films like Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell. <laughs> uh, he was the Minotaur in a double uh, episode of Doctor Who. Um, he was in a Russ Meyer movie, which is a very offensive film called Black Snake. Uh, which well, I, haven't, is, I haven't seen that, that one. <laughs> I have, and oh, yeah. I cannot in good conscience recommend it. <laughs> it's pretty fucked up. Yeah. Uh, it's not one of Russ's best films. I'll say that right now. Uh, but uh, yeah, he had a really, really long career. His first actual like feature film credit was in the original 1960s version of Casino Royale, hmm. where he played... A big bodyguard guy. He played the Frankenstein monster. Oh, in that one, okay. <laughs> he often played Frankenstein. It's a good gig if you can get it. Um, David Prowse made an impact on mm. film history. He, again, most people didn't know his voice. If you're curious what he sounded like, and uh, as Darth Vader, that footage is available. It's been in a lot of like making out special features. Whitney had never seen that footage, so I showed that to mm. him before we recorded here. And he was a very just British guy. Well, he's uh, Scott, but uh, mm. yeah, he he gave the performance like a, essentially like a, a, a Peter Cushing. Mm. It's sort of this this rather evil British man, and instead they chose an American to voice Darth Vader. They chose James Earl Jones. Mm-hmm. Uh, James Earl Jones has an amazing voice. It is you know deep and sonorous, and he gives a very menacing vocal performance. Yeah, um, he, he fills the room with just his voice. Yeah. It, it would have been a very different uh, take on the character if they had used David Prowse's voice. From what you played me, I... I I don't think it would have been bad. It would have been different. Uh, it would have been different. He would have, he would have come across... I want, you, I want you to tear this ship apart. Like he, he, yeah. he, he does have threat in his voice. Yeah, he was giving a performance, mm-hmm. and I don't think it was a bad performance, but it was definitely not the same. But, uh, to correction, he was English. Oh, he's English. Okay. He was English. Okay. Just to be, I, I, I double checked because I thought he was English, and you seemed so confident. He's, he sounded Scots to me. I uh, apologize. Fair enough. But no, he's he was he was English, and um, but yeah. So if you want to see some of that footage, it's very easy to find on YouTube. If you want to check it out, and by all means, give it a look, see, and just mm. think about like that. That would have been a different film. Probably would have still been good. Uh, but yeah, it would have yeah. been a different film. It would have come across more like um, more like a Basil Rathbone in like Adventures of Robin Hood type. Yeah, yeah. you know that sort of you know just sort of mm. British bad guy as opposed to the sort of felt a little bit more conniving rather than menacing. Yeah, which again, different take on the character mm. would have been neat. Um, in any case, David Prowse just deserves our respect, and of course, he will be missed. Never heard anyone say anything bad about him. Uh, I think. Uh, 
I think of of all of the characters that le- is really well known in pop culture history, Darth Vader slash Anakin Skywalker has uh-huh. had like the most number of actors to play him oh. within the bounds of a single franchise. Oh yeah, with like not like uh, rebooting I'm not, I'm not, it. Yeah, I'm like, not talking not, about like, like all these millions Dracu- of yeah, Sherlock like, Holmes Dracula's or Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. Is. I'm, I'm talking about like even within the bounds of all of the officially sanctioned Star Wars, mm-hmm. there's so many actors to have played this character. That's so, true. That's uh, true. and I would say he was one of the key ones because he was a the original. Mm-hmm. to do the, the, the physical performance and uh, just has been with it for the longest. Yeah. Um, so in any case, David Prowse, you will be missed. Thank you very, very much for your contributions to cinema. And um, we, 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 we will move on. Mm. But uh, again, Star Wars will live on apparently forever because it's everyone's favorite thing and good for them. It's a no fun one, movie. No one will ever win or lose unless you watch The Last Jedi, which should have been the last movie. Anyway. That, thank, thank you for the editorializing. You're, Moving you're on. quite welcome. It's, I'm a critic. It's what I do. Moving on. Where do you want to start this week, Whitney, for our new movie review? Um, let's talk about Hillbilly Elegy. Okay. So Hillbilly Elegy is the latest film from Ron Howard. Uh, it is a Netflix exclusive. It stars Amy Adams and Glenn Close. Uh, it is the story of a young man who grew up uh, the son of, for lack of a better word, and the movie uses the name mm-hmm. itself, Hillbillies. Uh, very, very Southern folk, very uh, working class, indeed, very poor hmm. uh, people who a family that is rife with domestic abuse and uh, drug addiction and many other problems. Besides, uh, he has grown it's a, up. It's a true story. It's a true story. It's based on a true story. Hmm. He's grown up and he's actually he's gone to, I think, Princeton. Is mm-hmm. the is the school, and uh, he is just about to uh, have an important meeting that might decide the future of his career. When he finds out that his mother has just overdosed, and he has to return home at the last minute mm-hmm. uh, to get the affairs in orders, and the story is told via flashback structure. Uh, I've often said of Ron Howard, uh, Ron Howard, of course, got his career started as a child actor, and then segued into filmmaking in the late seventies where he quickly proved himself to be a really masterful genre storyteller. He could adapt his style to a variety Mm -hmm. of different genres very successfully. He did uh, one of the best disaster movies ever with Apollo 13. He did uh, Backdraft. uh, Which is a story of of a serial arsonist. He did uh, uh, Splash, which is a romantic (laughs) comedy about a mermaid. Backdraft is about the firefighters. It's not about the arsonist. Well, you know what I mean, but that's that's the plot. It's a family drama. That actually gets me back to my point, which is... um, Regardless of whatever genre he has tacked himself onto, one of the things that I have often said was Ron Howard's greatest strengths was stories about family. Mm. And I think his best films often rely on that, or at least the best parts of his like, films. Like Parenthood. Parenthood is an excellent mm. motion picture, I feel. It's a, it's a film from the late 80s with a wonderful ensemble cast, including uh, Steve Martin, Diane Weist, mm. uh, Keanu, Reeves, it, Keanu Reeves. Yeah, it, yeah. Uh, uh, Joaquin Phoenix, when he was a child actor. Um, uh, Samantha, Ma- not Samantha Massis. So. Mm. Oh, what's her name? <laughs> oh, what's I, her I name? Know, uh, Martha Plimpton. Martha Plimpton. Oh, That's right. what I was thinking of. Martha Plimpton, who I was a big fan of. Um, mm. 
Uh, that's a great movie, and I think it's a great movie. It's a great movie about sort of various generations of a family just trying to make it work. And even in films of his that I don't particularly love, like Solo, I think the best stuff in Solo mm-hmm. is the stuff about like when Solo finds a makeshift family with Woody Harrelson. I think that's the highlight of the film. Yeah, or they're it's like three scenes where they're kind of warm together and then they yeah. change tacks. But that's the best it, part, yeah. I think. I think that's the when he's the most humane. So it's really surprising to see that he's got this whole movie that's nothing but familial drama and it seems kind of whiffed well here's the thing uh ron howard got his start sort of doing you know gritty as a director doing like gritty corman genre films hot car chase movies uh, yeah yeah and dust and exactly Grand Theft Auto. Uh, and uh when he moved into hollywood he adapted to sort of the the slick hollywood style really fast we're talking about films like backdraft and apollo 13 and so these are all high-profile mainstream mm. studio films with a, a broad uh, melodramatic appeal. It's rare that he does something a little bit off-kilter, off to the side. I think of uh, of his more recent films, Rush, oh, fill, fills that niche that's a little bit. such that's, a good movie. That, yeah, that's one of his very best films. It's, it's, so it's really underrated, but you yeah. know, for the most part, he's doing stuff like The Da Vinci Code and uh, yeah. these kind of broad adventure films or these have, or these big like sort of Oscar bait films like Frost Nixon which is very well crafted yeah Frost Nixon yeah. is actually quite good too um, A Beautiful Mind got problems with its treatment of mental illness but it is you know broad Hollywood melodrama it, at its, its height it, it's certainly uh, polished within an inch of its life it's exactly a, it's a good production so, of, a, of a iffy story I you think. put a film in Ron Howard's hands and he's gonna polish the heck out of it as best he can and the problem with Hillbilly Elegy is A, it's a true story, and B, it's not about, it's not a polished story. It's about drug addiction and yeah. poverty and cruelty and familial abuse. Yeah. And Ron Howard is either unwilling or unable to really give us the pain of that scenario. Mm-hmm. As such, he's making this family story about these really harrowing experiences. And polishing it up and making it feel incredibly inauthentic. Well, I think he's I think what he's getting at, and I don't think it's I think it's a misstep. I feel like what he's getting at is he's trying to take the experience of people who there's an early scene in the film where um the protagonist whose name escapes me JD. actually. Uh, was it JD? Yeah. Uh JD, again, he's this is all flashback structure. Mm-hmm. He's at Princeton and he's taking these uh big dinner meetings with people trying to get his career uh mm-hmm. in order. And uh, he doesn't know what to talk about. So he talks about the fact that he comes from this particular place that is probably no one else at the table has come from, you know, rural Alabama or, or I forget what I forget what kind of uh, state it is. Um, so he's he's using this as an in. I have a story to tell to at which point all of these elites to use the air quote term hmm. are saying just like, oh, what's it like to like go back home and be like, oh, I'm surrounded by all of these and I know it's offensive term. Rednecks is the term that they use. And he's like, we don't use that term. And everyone's like, oh, shit, no, I'm sorry. Uh, but I feel like what he's getting at by introducing that scene uh, is trying to say that, like, OK, I know you have an image in your head of what it is like to grow up in this lifestyle and this community Grow, and grow up impoverished in Appalachia. Yeah. yeah. And which is in the movie doesn't actually take place in Appalachia. In fact, yeah, it's partially, only, the, partially only like the opening. <laughs> then they mm-hmm. go to Ohio, I think. Um, but uh, regardless, I feel like what he's saying is, look, 
they're 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 human beings and I'm going to treat them exactly the way I treated the family in parenthood, even though their storylines are different. The problem is they're not the people in parenthood and and sort of telling their story with the exact same kind of. Uh, sort of dramatic approach. It, yeah, that, that's almost that, the same turn going shooting for the same tone, even though yeah. it's not the same kind of story. There's something about it that rings inauthentic. Mm-hmm. And that's something that we the, absolutely the, the, need. The word I just said. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, there you go. But I think that's why I think mm. he's trying to. There's something a little condescending about it. I, what the feeling I got while I was watching this movie is this is the kind of social message picture that like. John L. Sullivan would have directed at the beginning of Sullivan's travels if he hadn't learned to stay in his own lane. Yeah, um, it, it feels like uh, what could I compare it to? I don't want to say a Jack T. Chick comic, no, but that's, it, that's too much. It's, it, it doesn't go. Yeah, it's not like moralizing on that level. It's but not, it, it, it I has, it has this really kind of broad, almost Christian film appeal. Mm-hmm. But maybe that's what's what's getting me thinking of Jack T. Chick about yeah. sort of the the inherent goodness and purity and how you only need to do like one or two simple things and all of life's problems will be kind of solved. Not and so I much feel solved like, here, but mm, sort of like you'll the, glossed the, the, over survived. Yeah, it doesn't, uh, everything um, else doesn't matter as long as you do these three things in yeah, your life at some point. Uh, also, so as such, we have this story about this young man who has these really horrible problems. He has an abusive drug addict mother played by yes. Amy Adams. Uh, her, her, the character is named Bev and she uh, cares very deeply about her son yes. and wants to educate her son and actually is very good about uh, reading to him and making sure he goes to school. Mm-hmm. She's also a junk addict and uh, will physically abuse him and threaten to kill him on the regular. Yeah. And in f- to the point where everybody in the local community knows it mm-hmm. and will let JD hide out in their homes while mom is on a tear. Uh, he ends up having to run away from his mother and move in with his grandmother, Mama, played by Glenn Close, who is near unrecognizable and some pretty awesome makeup. Okay. Uh, and Mama's not very warm either. In fact, she, we find out later on that Mama is is inventing. That's right. Mama is more of the British version. It's Mama. Mama. Yeah. Uh, Mama is actually guilty of perhaps just as many bad things as mm. Bev is. But Mama, at this point in her life, has come to some greater realizations about what her family needs from her. Yeah. And at this point, she's kind of writing off her own daughter Mm. and just risking everything just to take care of her grandson, who she thinks of as Mm. not a lost cause yet. And there there is one scene that I kind of liked where... uh, She's pushing him around and telling him, here's what you need to do. Mm. And he gets really mad mm. and just sort of confronts her and says, you you don't even like me. And she, she looks right back at him and is like, I don't need you to like me. I just need you to do things right. Yeah, it's not a popularity contest. Mm. I'm here to raise you not to be so, popular. So yeah. his family sucks. It does. And I- sucks to him. And here's the, the really galling part of this story. There are three women in his life, his mother, his grandmother, and uh, later in his life, his girlfriend, played by Frida Pinto. Oh, and his sister. Oh, oh that's uh, yeah. His he, has a, he has a sister as well. Yeah. All all of these women gladly give of themselves to give him a leg up in the world. True. And often to their own detriment. Yeah. Th- that's and that seems to be the lesson here. If if you work really hard and you have other people willing to sacrifice their livelihood to push you up, then you'll succeed in this world. And that doesn't strike me as a very uplifting 
success well, story. What bothers me isn't so much the idea of it being a success story, because mm. I don't care if this guy went to Princeton well, that's, or, that's or opened the arc, up. Is I know, that he started I know. in poverty and I, he ended up in Princeton. I, I get it, sure. but I don't think that's necessarily the point is that he went to Princeton. I don't mm. think that's the point. I think the point is he overcame and hopefully in his uh, uh, relationship with a fellow college student played by Frida Pinto, mm. uh, that hopefully he will break this cycle of familial abuse. Right. I think that's more important than where he gets a job, at least according to this film. Uh, well, but my, but, my issue with that, uh, though, is that it's still very self-centered and that it, it's all about it's, me, yeah. me, me, and, and he, everyone yeah. else's sacrifices for me. And it turns out it's OK because I turned out fine. Mm. And we get we get like a montage of pictures at the end that it looks like everyone, you know, is making the best of it and good for them. But again, it ends up feeling very self-serving, and that mm. is something that makes the whole film feel a little suspicious. I'm not yeah, accusing it's, it's, anyone of anything, but it it puts me off and keeps me at a distance and makes me wonder whose ego this is for. Yeah, there, there's a, a streak of arrogance. I, I've, it's based on a written autobiography by yeah. J.D. Fans, and uh, he says uh, if... if he, he's clearly writing himself as the hero of his own story, as most autobiographies are. But he is also seem to be presenting himself as the best and most moral character in his life. Mm, at least as an adult, yeah. Is, and and everybody else around him is is kind of wicked or holding him back in some way. And that, yeah, that like to use your phrase, it's incredibly self serving. Yeah, uh, it's it's not a really great way to if you're really trying to capture an entire community, don't depict it as so awful that you're the only moral one you were the only one moral enough and to rise up out of uh, it yeah, to escape yeah, is a sort yeah. of thing that doesn't feel quite right i will say this about hillbilly elegy which mm-hmm. i don't think is a very good movie i think glenn close is pretty good in it but she's playing such a broad caricature that it doesn't really matter it doesn't really have the impact you want the, um, she, she she makes one of like this very strange analogy. Uh, I was just about a- to bring this up. This is my point. If nothing else, this movie gave us the neutral Terminator. The neutral speech. Terminator. Yeah, it's, there's only three kinds of people in this world: good Terminators, bad Terminators. She's a big fan of Terminator too. Bad Terminators and neutral Terminators. Because we saw so many neutral Terminators in those movies. Someone I was uh, I was having a conversation with Video Drew on Twitter about mm. this, and. Uh, I, she, we were talking about the Terminator speech, and she was like, "How many kinds of Terminators are there?" And it's in three: good, bad, and neutral. <laughs> and she was like, "There are no neutral Terminators." And like all Terminators are neutral until you turn the power on. Until you, pre- yeah, <laughs> neutral. So you're just sort of hanging there on the Terminator yeah, uh, rack. Yeah, just you know, sliding through. Okay, um, that is a weird speech. Mm. And that is a weird interpretation of the movie Terminator Two. And you know what? It has nothing to do with anything in the film. Why is that there? <laughs> It's so weird. It's really bizarre. It's such a weird moment. Yeah. So the, yeah, the, there's this idea that really difficult things can be easily dealt with mm-hmm. is an aspect of certain movies I've seen, uh, like Oscar bait kind of movies that uh, I think we've kind of grown past as a culture. It'd be nice to think. Uh uh, like, but unfortunately, we're still making them and we're still awarding them. Look at something like Green Book. Yeah. Racism isn't a problem if we just make friends. Uh-huh. Uh, look at something like American Sniper. Uh, PTSD isn't a problem. You can just get over that. Yeah. 
And this one is, you know, poverty and drugs aren't a problem if you have people just helping you and you get into law school. Yeah, it's, I, I think that's maybe a slight exaggeration of how bad this movie goes into it, but I do think it whiffs it. Okay. I think it whiffs it. I, I think it. Mm. I think it's. It's not. If it was just about, and here's here's one of the things that is an issue where presentation matters. Mm. Again, you didn't call it JD. You know, or or Bev's son or something really intimate. He called it Hillbilly Elegy. That sort of implies and I and I know some people say, oh, it's just the title. The title matters. The title contextualizes mm. the experience we're going to see. The title sets you up for something that was going to be sort of indicative of a lifestyle. And that's not what the movie is. If the movie was trying to be sort of the a, a definitive depiction Hmm. Or at the very least, an important depiction where, okay, finally I see what this uh, community of people, how this community of people lives. Uh, it feels fake. Yeah. And even if we ignore that and we just look at it as, as a biography of this one guy, hmm. it doesn't feel very interesting. And it actually falls back on a lot of kind of cinematic cliches and ultimately feels over what's what unbalanced in the favor mm. of just one character. Yeah. He's the protagonist, but still doesn't feel quite right. Um, it's not the worst movie of the year, but it's also not very good. It's, and I think I'm ready to move on. It's really quite bad. And, yeah. um, and, uh, speaking of painful situations that have easy solutions, can we talk about happiest season? Okay. Th- I was right. actually going to make another segue, but that works. Uh, the happiest season is it happiest season or the happiest. I think it's season? just happiest season. Uh, happiest season is a new film from director Claire Duvall. Actress Claire mo- known for being an actress, Claire Duvall. Yeah. Uh, she's actually a really good actor. You probably mm. remember her from, uh, but I'm a cheerleader. Uh, or The Faculty, or Girl Interrupted, or Argo. Mm. Uh, I'm a fan. I think she's very talented. And it turns out she's a very good director, and uh, her latest film is a... Superficially, it feels like a rom-com, but I actually think it's after something more complicated than that. Yeah. Uh, it stars Kristen Stewart and Mackenzie Davis. Uh, they, uh, they're, they're in love. They're living together. They're girlfriends. And it's Christmas time. And Kristen Stewart isn't very into Christmas. This is starting to sound familiar. Mm. So we're going to go to Mackenzie Davis's hometown and we're going to hang out with her family and do all the Christmas traditions. They're a wealthy family. Uh, Dad, played by Victor Garber, is an aspiring politician. But here's the big twist. She's not out to her family. Her family thinks she's hetero. Yes. And uh, And what's more, she's not not going to come out to them yet. And she hasn't told them that her that Kristen Stewart is also gay. Mm. So. So she's got to, they've both got to be in the closet all weekend. This is the, the same plot as the birdcage. Basically. To, to, uh, to yeah. impress potential in-law, politi- like conservative politicians, mm. they have to pretend to be straight. But the difference here is mm. that they're, they're spending all of their time, to use the birdcage analogy, mm. with the Gene Hackman family. Mm. And what we're seeing here isn't the majority of the time, the loving, positive relationship in which everyone can be open about their queerness, uh, we're seeing the stifling and, as we quickly learn, emotionally abusive family that Mackenzie Mm. Davis comes from, where her father, being a politician, he was a city councilman, now he's running for mayor. Mary Steenburgen is, you know, very much 
all up in everyone's life and business. Uh, Her her other uh, daughter, Allison Brie, is this like uh, super compulsive, compulsive overachiever. And their third daughter, Jane, uh, played by Mary Holland. Uh, I don't know. I don't know the actress. Yeah, she's the one who's sort of. Constantly, yeah, constantly being pushed off to the yeah. side. She also co-wrote this. Uh, she uh, is also a mess, but she's a mess in a different way because everyone, no one has any expectations of her. Mm. But Alison Brie and Mackenzie Davis are expected to be, quote unquote, perfect kids. And as a result, they cannot mm. be themselves around anybody. Yeah. And so when Mackenzie Davis goes home for the holidays, Kristen Stewart, who thought she knew this person, realizes that. She is falling back on these really toxic, maladaptive behaviors that her parents expect of her. And Mm -hmm. it ends up becoming kind of a nightmare. This isn't like a cute comedy of errors where everyone like they do the cute comedy of errors stuff. There's a few. There's a few funny ones. There's one bit where Kristen Stewart is like sneaking around the house, try to like get to Mackenzie Davis in the middle of the night. And she ends up like hiding. Set, set, uh, yes. Setting off a Roomba. Yeah. And making she ends a up, mess. Yeah, yeah. She's hiding in a storage locker or storage room. And then Mary Steenberg is like, what are you doing in the closet? Mm. They know what they're doing. Yeah. They know that's a dumb joke, um, but I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll say this. Kristen Stewart, first of all, one of the best actors of her generation, uh, national treasure. She, Kristen she is Stewart. really wonderful. She is able to uh, capture both the realism of the character and the broadness of of the moment when she, she can has, do both. And that when, was, that's a tough line to walk. There's a great comedic setup early on that I think a lot of actors wouldn't have been able to nail mm. where Mackenzie Davis tries to tell her like, listen, don't tell them any of these things about you, but also don't lie. You're that you're a terrible liar. And every single time Kristen Stewart has to lie, it's mm. hilarious how bad <laughs> she is at it. And that could just be mm. awkward writing. And Kristen Stewart sells it. Perfectly, uh, she nails this film. This is a film about a few uh, rather salient things. One is how uh, the the person you are dating uh, behaves differently at home. Yeah, that's and very that, common, and that's true. Uh, you yep. behave differently in front of your family or in your hometown than you would otherwise. Uh, it's also about the horrors of the closet. Yeah, and the way the closet radiates into the people you love, ultimately damaging everyone. Mm. Uh, The parts that broke my heart the most were the little slights. Yeah. This is my, every time she said, this is my friend rather than this is my girlfriend. The way, uh, she's not allowed to be in the family picture. Yeah. Like she, can you take the picture for us? Because we, we assume you're just her roommate. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, uh, uh, you know, a pollster doesn't know what to ask her because he doesn't. She doesn't understand like where she like fits in the family dynamic. Mm-hmm. Uh, that or, or even of, just at a, they're at like a dinner yeah. for like everyone that her dad knows, and Mackenzie Davis just leaves her to do mm-hmm. family stuff, and she's just sitting there alone because, and yeah. and unappreciated, and mm-hmm. it sucks. Uh, the Mackenzie Davis character is has been so uh, utterly damaged by being in the closet mm-hmm. that she is now alienating not not just the person she loves, 
another person she loves because we also have Aubrey Plaza in this movie mm-hmm. as um, Mackenzie Davis' ex-girlfriend who also was not talked about with the family. Mm-hmm. And, and we uh, eventually learn the full we, story yeah, behind we, it and, and it's really we, tragic. we establish that there's a pattern of behavior going on here. Yeah. And uh, it deals with some pretty sticky things. And I think it does it with a great deal of emotional authenticity. Yeah. I, I was wrenched by this film. You expect when this movie begins, because it has that Hallmark Christmas setup, mm. you expect when this movie begins that it's going to be cute. And it could have been, and that would I would have been fine with that if it was done well. Mm. I was completely unprepared for how pointed and observant it was about the way that children... Uh, the way we develop as children maladaptive behaviors mm. to deal with emotionally abusive or at the very least emotionally unavailable households yeah. and how without even realizing it, we fall back into those patterns. This is a defense mechanism for Mackenzie Davis. This is yeah. her trying to protect yeah. herself. And what she doesn't, she isn't consciously aware of is that she should also be protecting someone else right now. Mm. And she doesn't, even come close to realizing that until it may already be too late. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, I know some people have had some issues with the ending of this movie and they'd say that maybe it's got too easy an ending mm. for me. It doesn't feel easy for me. It feels mm. hopeful, but I would argue that because there's like a major time jump because they point out that like, this is something that has been lasting over time. This is a movie in which I think change is possible but it takes a lot of work. I, I want to give the, Daniel. Well, the, yeah. the, the problem is we don't see the work. I understand that the it, movie it, has it, to end at some point. It, it gets well, it, it can end at a different spot. You see, they, they didn't have to end it that way. It, Maybe. it, it becomes almost like a, a, a dream sequence or a fantasy. How mm. how easily everything just sort like of the falls ending together. of Taxi Driver. And we're yeah, still like, wondering if it's real or not. Exactly. There's the, yeah. yeah, there's this this big uh, or, or a 25th hour. Oh, mm. and this is how great it could have been. And I get out of jail and <sighs> I, I, I grow thing. up and I have all that these kids. Goes on forever. And, yeah, and, and we're going to have 20 minutes. Of, look, I love Spike Lee, but he can he can be a little a uh, little long winded. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, I feel like. It was sort of like that. Like, this is sort of the Scooby-Doo and mega happy ending mm. that it doesn't feel 100% earned, especially given yeah. the emotional honesty that we had been through in other scenes. Perhaps. I, I do feel as though one thing that takes the, the curse off of that is, and it's a scene that I haven't seen a lot of people talk about. The movie opens with, like, a montage of, like, beautifully painted, like, Rockwellian pictures Mm -hmm. of Kristen Stewart and Mackenzie Davis and uh, their best friend, uh, played by Dan Levy, uh, their their lives together. He's also very good in this. He's very, very good in this. He's very, very... He's basically playing the Rupert Everett role in uh, My Best Friend's Wedding, right down to the brief moment where he has to pretend to be Kristen Stewart's boyfriend, and it's hilarious. But yeah. he also... <laughs> yes, I am Kristen Stewart's heterosexual boyfriend. Like, he even says, I am, I am heterosexual. <laughs> but he actually has, I think, the best speech in the movie mm. at the end, uh, where he talks about how... Oh, the, I his, know his, the, his coming out experience. He talks about his coming out experience and how everyone's coming out experience is different, and that what Mackenzie Davis did to Kristen Stewart, of course, in this film, isn't right. Hmm. But he also has some sympathy for where she's coming from because her experience is unique. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of heart in that. Um, But that opening montage establishes a life, a real life that Kristen Stewart and Mackenzie Davis have free from this bullshit. And it's only when they visit this bullshit for a few days that Mackenzie Davis falls back and we realize just how truly damaged she's been. And so I think that gives me 
a, an honest belief that their relationship might be able to be salvaged at the end. Because okay. in the end, it's based on something very real that has nothing to do with these people. And maybe they can be decent to each other at the holidays and get through some shit. Also, I want to give a huge, huge shout out to Mary Holland, who's hilarious as Jane. She's hilarious in this movie. She's mm. hilarious in this movie. Please she, put her in more things. She has a, a really th- her running joke is that she's working on a, a series of uh, kind of absurd sounding fantasy novels. Yeah, like YA Harry Potterish and, fiction, and so full she's, of elaborate mythology. Yeah, so whenever she like they start a scene and she's like talking about oh and the and the scrunts are gonna talk about the nerfs and like all of these. <laughs> That's terminology from Lady in the Water, but uh, she she makes up, you know, she's talking about all these like weird fantasy proper nouns that she's made up and everybody at the table, their eyes are like glassed over. Just (laughs) I don't care. And, uh, uh, and she has a really great, like, wonderful line at the end. It's like, OK, I'll, I'll just sell my book and take care of everybody. <laughs> I, I, I think she's wonderful. I think everyone's wonderful in this movie. I was absolutely prepared to cut this movie slack for being a light cliche Christmas comedy. Again, I was totally taken back by how severe and how honest and yeah. how honestly, how cruel this movie could be. Yeah. And it was a lot darker than I thought. And I know some people have really responded negatively to that. And I think it's the sort of thing where I think it's surprising when you encounter it. And mm-hmm. I think when you, when it, you sit on it longer, maybe when you revisit it and you know what you're getting, I think this movie might only gain more traction over yeah. time because I really, really like this movie a lot and I hope more people see it. Yeah. I, I, I like it. I like parts of it, but I do feel like it cops out. Okay. I, I feel like it go, it like goes up right to a precipice of something really, really difficult and goes the Hollywood path instead. It just doesn't feel Hollywood. It, 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 feels, it feels happy, it feels, but it feels no. It feels really false okay. to me. Um, and right. and which was a pity because it was bumping up against some some truths. Yeah, uh, yeah that's fair. Yeah, and and you know, sort of the the whole the drama of coming out. Uh, did you ever see Love Simon? Yeah, I'm keep, I get you know, I keep meaning okay. to see that. Everyone okay. told me it was uh, wonderful. And I never well, there's got a, there's to a it. line of dialogue in in uh, Love Simon about how. Uh, Simon doesn't know how to come out. Uh, it, he's 17 years old. He's in love with a, a, a mystery boy that he's been chatting with, uh, but he, he doesn't want uh, he doesn't want sort of his current scenario to be interrupted by something as dramatic as coming out. So he's still in the closet to his family and to most of his friends. And uh, at, at one point, uh, somebody else learns that he's gay. And uh, he has a speech to the effect of uh, when it comes to coming out, no one else gets to do that for me. I might be sort of hemming and hawing a little bit. I'm being really indecisive, but this is my choice to make. How I come out is my choice. And as coming out stories go, I think this is really tackling something that's really common and really difficult in a lot of people's lives. How do you come out to your family if you're pretty sure they're going to react badly? Uh, or even if they're not going to react badly, it's something that's really difficult to do. And I feel like this film has that bit of difficulty and then it just sort of brushes away any kind of major consequence. You understand? Yeah, I do. I, okay. I don't. I don't. I disagree to the degree mm. that you're that you're witnessing this. Uh, but uh, maybe here's here's what I'll cop to. I can be an optimistic guy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm the guy who thinks that the movie The Wrestler ended fine. <laughs> 
<laughs> like everything turned out fine. It was fine. Everyone went home and it was great. William, he's done on that mat. He's we dead. don't know that. It's off camera. He jumped into heaven. He, the last shot is him like rising up to right, the top of the screen. Right, which means he gets to go he's, home with Marissa uh, Tomei and live a, li- live a nice life as a butcher. She okay. left him. She, was, she vanished from the doorway. It was also sad. She vanished from the doorway. And, he, and after he won the wrestling match, he's fine. Okay. It can just be a sad film. It can. Sadness is a leave, wonderful cathartic emotion. Any ambiguity, my tendency is to skew positive. Mm, all right. This isn't ambigu this isn't ambiguous. However, I do think I was more inclined to accept the happy ending mm. because personally I like to think that people can get better because mm. if they can't, that's a sad world we live in. Yeah. So for me, I, I was more willing perhaps to accept the happy ending than you and other people. I know the people mm. who, who had the similar uh, critique. Yeah. For me, I'm willing to accept it because I think it's part of the genre. I think it is ultimately not a strict romantic comedy and that it doesn't hit all of the very safe nurturing notes. Mm. But I do think it has the structure of one. And I think adhering to it is not the worst sin in the world for me. Um, Let's move on. And we've talked about two movies that feel um, one movie that felt very false. Mm. One movie where we're, we're, we're sort of conflicted in terms of how earnest it can be. We mm. had some d- debate about the ending. Can we talk about a movie that feels incredibly real? <laughs> are, are we going to talk about Lover's Rock? We must talk about Lover's oh, Rock. Good. Because, oh, because my God, what a good movie because, this is. Because Lover's Rock is freaking amazing. Yeah, uh, it L- is. Lover's Rock is the second film in the small acts cycle of films yeah. uh, putting up, being put out by Steve McQueen. Mm-hmm. Uh, one film a week for five weeks. He's made five of them. Uh, uh, you re- you reviewed Mangrove yeah, last la- week. Last I meant weekend. to catch up to that this week. I didn't have time, but I did just jump right to Lover's Rock. Yeah, I'm uh, really glad I saw it because holy crap, man. Uh, Lover's Rock uh, takes place in 1960-ism. Um <laughs> probably look up a, a few more details about Lover's Rock. Uh, this is um, actually supposed to be the 80s. Oh, is it? Right. Uh, according to according to Wikipedia, anyway, it's supposed to be the 80s. Okay. Um, and it takes place mostly uh, at a single party. Yeah, over the course of... Uh, the whole movie takes place over the course of less than 24 hours. Yeah, it's like over the, the, the course of a night. And it's about a, a young woman... It's actually about a whole group of people, but mostly it centers mostly on a, a one young woman who's going there and essentially how she's going to meet a nice young man and they're going to dance all night and kind of fall in love over the course of the evening. Not for any sort of contrived... Uh, no, this is just conversational this reason. This is the night yeah. that they met. This is the circumstance in which they met. Yeah. It was romantic. There were also downsides and there were uh, some awful moments as well. Mm-hmm. But what Steve McQueen is after here isn't any kind of cutesy contrivance. I wouldn't accuse Steve McQueen of that generally anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I feel like, and we talked about this when we talked about Mangrove a little bit. Um, I feel like sometimes Steve McQueen's work can feel a little... Uh, um, what's staged. It? Staged. Yeah. yeah. Or stayed even might even be a better mm-hmm. word where he's maybe he's filming something and maybe it feels very real, but he feels as a storyteller, like he's pulled back, like he's watching the events from like the other side of a window. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's very effective here. Smashes that window gets right up in the characters and their business and their emotions and in their mm. tiny moments. This is a movie of tiny moments. That's and oh. every single one of them feels natural and earned mm. and beautiful. Uh, it's 
good golly, is it exhilarating? Yeah. Uh, it, it's it, yeah, really just this little realist snapshot of an era. It's uh, I feel like we don't get a lot of films that are this skilled at just sort of sitting and looking. Yeah. And just diving right into obs- a situation, observing and re- it, it feels uh, it, in many portions, it feels like a documentary. Yeah. Uh, I was reminded of uh, the, the film Babylon, uh, which was remastered last year. a British film about uh, a reggae culture. Oh, yes, yeah. I am familiar. I haven't seen it, but I'm okay. familiar with it. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of reggae in this movie. It's nonstop. It's, yeah, not, nonstop. I would kill for the sound. They better put out like this. I'm sure it's on Spotify or something like that. But the soundtrack for this movie is amazing. And, um, uh, and the and all of the people live the music. They're all really yeah. familiar with it to the point where there's this really wonderful moment right in the middle where the music stops mm. and everybody at the party is able to sing the entirety of the song uh Acapella, and for a moment, I'm actually not sure as I'm watching mm. it if the song, if the soundtrack has actually died down, like diegetically within the film, mm. or if it's only the filmmaker who has dropped it out of the film, so that we can see that remove the artifice of pop music. Mm. Everyone here is sharing a moment. Everyone here is sharing a sentiment. Everyone here is feeling the exact same thing, and it's not for a brief moment. It is an extended period of time yeah. and it is astoundingly beautiful. And again, it's not about something. It's not like, well, it's, it's, not, it's well, I mean, what I mean to say is it's not like trying to get somewhere in a plot. Like mm. if we sing this song, we'll save the youth center. <laughs> it's not it's something about that. It's just, everyone was there feeling the, something yeah. together. And we danced all night to the best song ever. Uh, well, yes, yeah, yeah I mean, that is, that is a very good one direction song. Mm. It is actually, yeah, actually like that song. Un- a lot. Ironically, I think no, it's I, a good message. I actually like that song a lot, uh, <laughs> and uh, it, it, it's really great about constructing entire dramas out of little tiny moments. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, you said there are some pretty dark moments. There is uh, somebody needs to be saved from behind a shed at one point yeah. in, in this really uh, rather scary moment. There's uh, a, a two characters who very briefly are just seen in a bedroom together. And we get an entire story from maybe 10 seconds of film. Oh, yeah. Big story. Uh, Yeah. We um, there are like blowhard jerks who like try to flirt with all the girls and are constantly getting shut down. And we're Mm. laughing at them because we recognize all of these human foibles. There's little things glimpsed through bathroom windows about where the evening might be headed or not. It just feels like you're really again, whereas Hillbilly Elegy feels like Mm. everything is being presented to you Mm. as cleanly as possible. Even the dirt feels sanitized. Yeah, Yeah. Here, everything just feels like you went back in time Hmm. and you just got to be at this party and you weren't allowed to interact with anybody but you were able to just be there for this one incredibly not quite but nearly perfect party Hmm. where everyone had great food and danced and smoked great weed and (laughs) again one horrible thing happens and that's a that's a problem but for the most part this is actually a night that a lot of people are going to remember very fondly there is a shot in this movie. There's a lot of the whole movie is gorgeously photographed. Mm. But there's a shot in this movie of uh, the the characters who end up being basically the protagonists over the course of the film on a bicycle. <laughs> Easily the best shot I've ever seen of a bicycle <laughs> in a movie. I'm watching this and I'm just like, mm. 
they, they have to have composited this. There's no way they got this in camera. It's just the the absolute incredible depth of field here. <laughs> it's so astounding to me that I'm wondering if this is an incredibly complicated visual effect or if this has the best cinematographer in the world. Possibly both. <laughs> <laughs> I'm willing to bet it's more the latter because these films are just exquisitely photo. This one and Mangrove. Yeah. Uh, we have three more in this cycle. I liked Mangrove. I loved Lover's Rock. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm really, really eager to see more. Well, of I'm these. completely on board with this series. I'm totally mm. going to catch up on Mangrove this week. And then next week uh, we get to see uh, the film Red, White and Blue, which mm. stars John Boyega. Uh, as uh, Leroy Logan, who founded the Black Police Association and uh, tried to reform the police department. So uh, that's a big topic. And hopefully, uh, mm-hmm. if it's even remotely as good as this, we're in for a treat. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, we will watch it and we will see for ourselves. <laughs> yeah, and, and of course, this this is also a deeply political movie. Um, mm-hmm. They talk about going to a, a blues party. That is, they're going to be able to go to somebody's home and listen to music at a time when uh, that kind of music wasn't being played in clubs. Yeah. And uh, they were still encountering a lot of uh, racism and racist laws that were preventing that kind of music from being played uh, in, in clubs. This is their pocket of the world. Yeah. And, uh, and I appreciate that it was given such exquisite loving care by somebody who cared about it. Yeah. Uh, You can tell Ron Howard doesn't really care about hillbillies. Well, I mean, maybe he thinks he does, but I don't think he understands them intimately. No, he's, he's been, you know, as part of the Hollywood system ever since he was a kid. I'm sure he thinks he's being sympathetic and and maybe he genuinely is, but it doesn't come from a place of intimate understanding. Uh, Steve McQueen probably didn't go to a party like this. He's too young, Mm -hmm. but is he? How young is he? He's only a little older than we are. Okay. Um, Well, Damn, he's talented. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's, not a, he's not a man in his 60s, is my point. Uh, yeah. So he... Uh, but he cares deeply about getting these kinds of details right and bringing these things to life and bringing that era to life and these people to life. He's a bit older than me. He was born in 1969, but he still probably okay. wasn't at this party. Yeah. He, he's, he's, a, he's a Gen Xer. Yeah. If you're American. True. True that. Um, well, let's move on. Mm. And uh, so the last several films that we're viewing were films mm. that only one of us saw. All right. uh, why don't you get us started by reviewing Zappa, uh, which I assume is about Dweezil. <laughs> it's about Dweezil's dad. Oh, Dweezil's Dweezil dad. had a dad? That's Dwe- cool. Okay. Dweezil had a famous father, it turns out. <laughs> This is a documentary by Alex Winter, uh, who we saw act earlier this year in Bill and Ted Face the Music. Uh, Uh, Alex Winter, uh, clearly a Zappa fan. You can tell by looking at the guy. I would hope so if you're making a... Unless it's like some kind of weird expose in which you find out he was horrible or something. I would imagine if you're doing a documentary about an artist, you probably are into the artist a little bit. Um, And this is a very hero-worshipy kind of documentary. Mm. Uh, This is not a warts and all sort of thing where we're going to reveal Zappa's great failings, although it does point out that he was such a workaholic that he essentially treated his kids like, you know, a, a, a distraction from composing. Yeah. Uh, Frank Zappa is a really interesting figure. Uh, he He's described uh, throughout this film as a rock star or as a composer. Some people call him a cult figure. Uh, if somebody's really, really into Zappa, 
maybe be careful of them. Uh, <laughs> oh my God. Frank Zappa wrote, uh, I guess there's no better way to put this, really difficult music. Yeah. It's it really uh, point, pointedly, pointedly confrontational rock music that sounded a little sloppy, that deliberately had really filthy lyrics, uh, that was really atonal. Uh, and uh, it, it actually is compiled together of you know, uh, interviews with uh, people who have survived Zappa, who died uh, back in the 90s, and old uh, you know, interviews he did for international television and home movies he shot. And he, uh, he admits that it was um, Vare- uh, the composer Varez of Varez Saraband, the label, um, who wrote this like very uh, experimental kind of classical music with a lot of atonality and there were really long pieces that 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 was his like central musical inspiration. He didn't have a lot of music in his home growing up. So he started finding these really bizarre classical records and thought, this sounds great. I'm going to do this. And uh, he tried to do that in a pop milieu Mm. and he never really got the kind of mainstream success that any other rock star would uh, be looking for, but he and he did, didn't want it. But he was really well known, he, though. He was known yeah, for being weird. He was known for being weird. He didn't want to hit. Uh, a lot of his songs are about how awful the record industry is, mm-hmm. and about how they're looking for really specific kinds of of music, which is antithetical to experimenting with great art. Didn't he once do a song about how cheap the monster and it conquered the world is? Oh, I don't know. Isn't about there a song he did called Cheapness? <laughs> I'm going to look this up because right. I could have sworn that he did a song about yeah. that monster. Or maybe it was just a part of the yeah. song or something. And uh, yeah, as, as such, we get to really delve into uh, just his career and uh, how this need to create great art created this weird, very arrogant figure about uh, how great he was as an artist and how he heard this very specific type of atonal sound in his head and gathered around some really talented musicians. Steve Vai uh, played for Frank Zappa. Steve Vai is sometimes called the best guitarist to have ever lived. Uh, And, uh, but treated them like cogs in a machine. And he was a little bit of a dictator a lot of the time. Mm. Uh, it doesn't go into like any of like horror stories uh, other than uh, and also he liked to get laid a lot. And, you know, he he rather openly cheated on his wife and his wife knew about it, even if she didn't really approve of it. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't get into the weeds of that. Uh, it just sort of lets us know his ethos through what he says to uh, to, answer, a, to answer. If anyone's curious, the song is cheapness, C H E E P N I S cheapness from 1974. And it's not exclusively about it conquered the world, but it's about cheap B movies. Yeah. And he loved cheap monster movies. Yeah. He, he was very open about that as well. Uh, his biggest hit was Valley girl, which he recorded with moon unit, his daughter. Um, that was, uh, I think it was like his highest charting hit. And mm. he just took the success of that and said, oh, well, now I can take the money from that and do what I want to do. Yeah. Uh, in a rather heartbreaking sequence, we learn that he recorded Valley Girl with Moon Unit because she slipped a note under his door 
saying when he was you know, busy at work, saying, "Hey, my name is Moon Unit. I'm your daughter. I'd like to see more of you. So in order to do that, here's a song I'd like to record with you." Like the only way she could wow. spend time with him was to work with him. Wow, and, that's and it doesn't hover over how well, tragic that the, is. The, it just the, sort of it, like does Frank Zappa talk about that? Did that break his heart, or did he just go, "Well, it worked"? Yeah, <laughs> the, yeah, that he, he was more of, "Well, it worked." Yeah. Now, he, weird. I wish it had gone a little bit more into, and I, I know a lot of people wouldn't find this very interesting, but I would have a little bit more musical theory. Mm. We ta- and it played a little bit more of his music for us to hear what he's talking about. Uh, I feel like this is a documentary for people who are already really familiar with Frank Zappa's work. I'm vaguely familiar with Frank Zappa's work, thanks to an ex-girlfriend of mine who bought me a bunch of Zappa records and insisted he's the be- most brilliant musician of all time. I was listening to like comedy records and Dr. Demento. So he's like comedy it's a, adjacent. It's a, it's a good gateway. Yeah. It's a good, they're all things you, you would do well to listen to while you're high. Well, which actually don't do that because Frank Zappa was very pointedly anti-drugs. Oh. Everyone said he's like this you know, crazy, wacky hippie dude. And he looked like he had wild hair and yeah. this like weird facial features, this big lanky guy who dressed in weird the, outfits. The music is trippy. But he was, he was straight as an arrow. He hated huh. hippie culture. Oh, that's funny. Uh, he he did. Ne- he never took drugs. He discouraged people from taking drugs. Mm-hmm. He he thought that image was uh, just another thing in a very Holden Caulfield way. Was just another way of being phony. Yeah. Uh, you, you mentioned that uh, you feel like this is a movie mm-hmm. that will sort of strengthen the point of view of people who are already Frank Zappa fans. But when I think about this kind of documentary, especially if it's not like incredibly revelatory. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what is the function of it? Because mm-hmm. the documentaries are here to educate or at the very least yeah. enlighten. Uh, and so my question is this. Do you feel that if someone is vaguely interested in Frank Zappa or if someone who is a super Frank Zappa fan wants to get someone into Frank Zappa mm-hmm. that they know, this would be a good watch? That, well, that's that's what this is. This is Alex Winter, mm-hmm. clearly a Frank Zappa fan yeah. from the start. Introducing try, Frank Zappa. Trying to say, here's why Frank Zappa is so cool. Right. And you think that will play to people who aren't a big fan or don't even know who he is? May, maybe so. And okay. But uh, again, if they had actually taken a little bit more time to explain the nuts and bolts of musical theory and mm. why what he was doing was a revelation. Yeah. Or if they actually just played a lot more of his music, maybe that would have worked out okay. Hmm. Um, we hear, uh, like... And and it's it's frustrating some of the parts they leave out. Like, I'm not a huge Frank Zappa fan, but I know the movie 200 Motels. I would like to know a little bit more about the making of 200 Motels or Baby Snakes or the the... Um, what's it called? The amazing Mr. Bickford, the animator he worked with. Yeah. Uh, some more about sort of his film work. I think that would have been really fascinating. They do spend a lot of time with uh, how he testified in Congress mm. uh, at the time when um, Jim Baker was trying to put like warning labels on cassettes and how he stood out very strongly against censorship. And he even pointed out in interviews uh, that he wasn't the one that was under attack. He wasn't trying to put out a record that was being censored. He was fighting for the rights of other musicians who were being really quiet at the time. Like Prince never came out and said, thank you for defending my right to sing dirty songs, Frank Zappa. Prince was off, or Bruce Springsteen. Uh, They were off to the side just sort of waiting for the chips to fall. And he's very eloquent about how artists should be, especially musical artists, should be free to express themselves how they like. And he came up with a very elegant solution, which nobody adopted. 
It's like if if you really want to alert parents to the kinds of mu- the kind of music that the kids are listening to, print all the lyrics on the record. That yeah, sorry, knocked over a little bottle there. But print all the lyrics on the Pr- record. Print all the lyrics on the record. That way, the parent can pick up the the record, read the lyrics, and if they object to it, they you know they know what they're getting into. Mm. Instead, they had that little parental advisory logo, which is so printed. generic. It's uh, I, I remember how notorious that thing it's was. It's just like parental advisory suggested. And what what are we being advised of? Well, it's it, it's L- like language. It's like parental guidance of, at the MPAA. I know, but it it's basically mean. just it, it basically just feels like a rubber stamp. It ends mm. up just being like parents warning. It's not mm. actually like telling you like. Well, it says parents is it warning. Good warning? Is it just like is this gonna like? Well, the well the problem was record stores began pushing those tapes into separate sections. Yeah, and kids weren't allowed to get some of this music because it might have a naughty lyric or two. Yeah. No, or or it could be just brazenly filthy, like the Two Live Crew. Yeah, or uh, it could be fiercely political, like yeah, you know, like yeah, NWA, so, which yeah was also had mm. you know naughty lyrics, but was also fiercely political. Yeah. And so and, that's and something if, that we might not have access to. But you know, Frank Zappa, for as as uh, uh, passionate and strident as he was, wasn't always the most eloquent guy, and that got him into trouble sometimes. He was on chat shows. Like, yeah. well, if it looks like censorship and it sounds like censorship, then it must be censorship. Well, do you, surely you don't, uh, do you, you don't approve of this, this, and this, and this, and Frank Zappa would just look the guy in the eye and says, hey, how about you kiss my ass? Like, he, he doesn't have, a, like, a, a, an intellectual retort. He just likes getting into fights with people. <laughs> He's a very abrasive person, and I yeah. think, I feel like the film doesn't really bring that out in any kind of meaningful way. Well, speaking of abrasive, mm. uh, let's talk about porno. <laughs> uh, porno is a horror comedy that I actually reviewed earlier this year when it was mm. originally released on VOD. It is now, however, a shutter. I, I guess it's an exclusive. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's getting a much bigger push that way because a lot of people already have the streaming service mm. and they're going to get uh, more access to it. Uh, this is a, a very, very, very violent horror comedy about a group of mostly very, like, staunch Christian teens mm-hmm. who work at a movie theater, and late at night they're allowed to watch whatever movie they want after the, the doors close, and they find in, like, the alcoves... They find an, ar- an archive in a, a hidden room that they didn't know was in the theater. Yeah, of, like, old, like, 35-millimeter porno movies, and they accidentally watch a porno movie that is also involves a, like, a demonic ritual, and they mm-hmm. end up, like, opening a gateway to sex hell. Well, well, what happens is they they play this film and it invokes a succubus who's let loose in the theater. Um, This takes place in uh, a rinky-dink little multiplex in a small town uh, in the 1990s, and the characters all wear, like, those really horrible polyester vests and bow ties. Mm. This was my life. I know. This was my first job. So (laughs) I, I, I was drawn to this movie. I had to watch it. And I'll say this. There's a lot of authenticity to this. The way the people are just sort of bored. Mm-hmm. The, the tone of which they kind of aggressively shoot the shit. The, uh, I appreciated that the, uh, the projectionist was... He was really angry. He was really cantankerous. But because they're all Christians, he's also straight edge. Yeah, so he's and cantankerous he's, and edgy about being straight edge. Yeah, uh, so he, he's got the big black X on the back of his hand, which is... Uh, uh, 
uh, code for designated driver. Right. So he's clearly like been to some sort of gig or a bar earlier and he's not drinking and he's he's given up smoke. He's like, I, I gave up the devil's weed. Nicotine is bad for you, man. And he's really confrontational. But <laughs> I love the he's character. He's the best part of the movie. He's yeah. the best part of the movie to me. He's a very funny character. <laughs> And, and the other characters are uh, you know, shallow, but in, in a relatable sort of in way. a horror uh, movie yeah. kind of way, in a Night of the Demons kind uh, of I'm, way. They're, they're not horrendously abrasive, which I appreciate. Mostly, um, yeah. yeah. Um, the movie's pretty dumb. Uh, Let's there, be fair. That, that's that was uh, my reaction, too. There's a lot of just sex-related mayhem and really uh, brass, brassy, crass jokes. Uh, somebody falls to the ground and shouts out, she, she exploded my nuts at one point. And, uh, that, I'm gonna that's say the intellectual this, level we're operating. And I'm going to say this right now. Mm. Uh, that's the scene where the movie kind of lost me because there's a, there's a thing in horror movies and I, I miss this. I actually do. I mm. miss splat stick. <laughs> and if you're familiar with the term, it's basically what it sounds like. It's slapstick comedy, but with gore. Yeah. And some of the best horror movies ever made are examples of Splatstick. Uh, probably the best two examples are mm-hmm. Peter Jackson's Dead Alive and Sam Raimi's Evil Dead 2. Dead Alive is, is awesome. That's but they're both awesome. Favorites, they're both yeah. practically perfect horror comedies in a lot of ways. But um, it's a difficult thing to pull off because you want it to be gross, but you still want it to be funny. Mm-hmm. And there's a line you can cross where it ends up becoming like almost um, almost medical. <laughs> and there's something and there's something when when we finally get to the scene where the succubus explodes a guy's nuts. Mm. Sounds funny to say. Uh I did not need the vivid imagery and it just they, ended they, up they becoming some... off-putting mm. and I realized that ultimately there's a streak throughout porno that loses its sort of naive innocence and I thought that was a good counterpoint to the horror. And I started realizing that on some level, the the filmmakers have it out for me. <laughs> they're, try, they're trying to push they're, you out. They're trying to push me out of it. And I'm sorry. They did too good a job. Mm-hmm. And after a while, I, I kind of checked out. I don't hate this movie, but it didn't quite work for me because I well, ultimately the, uh, thought the tone was just misplaced. The idea of staying, pa- staying uh, in, in your uniform after hours yeah. to watch a film in this theater is something that happened. Oh sure, uh, I've I've worked in movie theaters before. I worked at video was, stores. We used to do that on the big like wall of yeah, TVs. Yeah, uh, uh, I, I guess I can talk about this now. I used to be very mum, but uh, the, the the tradition is long over. I I worked at a movie theater where uh, I think it was once a week, maybe it was once a month. Uh, they had a, a special event where people who worked at the video store next door would buy whatever print. They could afford. Yeah. Didn't matter what it was. Just it's anything. A, it's a, here's a German sex comedy that we've never heard of. Here's yeah. uh, My Giant with Billy Crystal. <laughs> here, here, here's Krull, but it's missing real three. You know, it's... <laughs> And uh, and the, uh, here's your the hunter from the future. Sometimes they get the director involved. Wait, who's uh, the hunter from the future? You're the hunter from the future. Nice. Aren't we all the hunter from the future? <laughs> <laughs> Can't we get uh, beyond Rangoon? Um, I, I I remember uh, and and the the clerks at the video store would give introductions. I remember the introduction for Krull. It was just uh, uh, I'm not going to say his name, but he got up on stage and just yelled Krull, <laughs> and everybody cheered. They're all a little drunk. Yay! And then he yelled Glay. 
Eve, <laughs> which is the weapon from Crawl, and everybody cheered, and that was it. He got off, and they ran the film. One of my favorite video store moments was mm. I was working at a Hollywood video, and someone just walked into the store and said, hey, what's that movie with the giant spider in the hourglass? And everyone on the everyone on the Not even, without here, even looking up. Crawl. I mean, yeah, crawl. <laughs> and the guy was just, and memory serves, the guy was like, thank you. And then he left. He didn't rent it. <laughs> he just well, couldn't remember funny. what the damn movie was. But uh, those those are some really uh, magical times, and I feel like this is uh, written and made by a, pe- a person or a group of people who have experienced that. Yeah. Who uh, that weird sort of after hours camaraderie where you're spending time with your coworkers who are and aren't your friends. Like yeah. you don't necessarily like them, but they're sort of your friends by you're, circumstance. You're in the trenches. Yeah, yeah. You know, you're dealing with the same awful customers. You're I dealing have, with yeah. the same gross. Food disasters mm. and cleanups, and, and, and yeah, yeah. It tur- turns out that that one homeless guy who's always falling asleep in the front row turns out he has a story, man. Yeah, and in, in porno, uh, and, and yeah, I think that the cast was really charming, especially uh, the uh, the female lead. Um, uh, look up the actress's Jillian name, Mueller. Uh, Jillian Mueller is yeah. her name. Uh, I think she has she's got something. I think she's mm. she has a, a long career ahead of her. So we might want to keep an eye out for more with Jillian Mueller. Yeah. Uh, so th- I admit that the things that I liked about this movie were things I experienced personally. Mm. It's it's all just uh, the inner workings of boring multiplexes uh, is maybe not 100 percent nailed, but it is accurate. And yeah. uh, I appreciate that somebody made a low budget horror movie about a succubus loose in a theater that's playing Encino Man and got it kind of right, at, at least on one level. But I, I do agree when when we're seeing like close ups of some of the gore, it's a little bit. Weren't they also showing a league of their own? A, yeah. And that was the, the toss up. Do we watch a league of their own or Encino Man? I don't want to watch either of those. I know, but we got to choose one A league of their own. It's great. <laughs> it's one of the best movies yeah. of the 90s. Yeah. But you know what? There are only two screens at this theater. Do you know how many times they've seen those movies? I know. They could probably recite those movies by now. And that's a movie, problem. It's. A league of their own. It's there's, great. There's movies I can recite that I technically haven't seen. Mm. Anyway, uh, I, you know, you're by osmosis. You're just yeah. in, in contact with them for so long. No, fair enough. All right. Well, the last new release we're reviewing this week on critically acclaimed uh, is a Christmas romantic comedy. Yeah, we did that uh, one already, which is uh, which is <laughs> queer themed. Uh, we did that one already. Uh huh. This one's on Hallmark. Oh. No, that's actually noteworthy. This is the no, first. This is the first mm. Hallmark Christmas movie to feature a gay male couple. Yeah, it only took them what, like twenty years. I know it's ridiculous, but let's how, we, how many how many films came before I, this one? I, I'm, I'm totally like, with like you. Four thousand. I'm yeah. totally with you. But here's the thing: it's actually pretty good. So I do want to give it some credit. Now, pretty good as a, as a piece of film or pretty good on the Hallmark sliding scale? On the Hallmark sliding scale, it's a fucking masterpiece. Okay. On, on the other scale, I actually think it whiffs the ending a little, mm-hmm. but it's actually pretty good. It's, so it's another queer romantic Christmas well, comedy that whiffs the ending. It's, it's, a, it's an ensemble piece. So they're like one of like two couples. Actually, three if you count the mom and the dad. So, oh, so you're reducing the gay character's screen time. Great. <laughs> Well, this, you're this not, what, you're not wrong. Call, it's what we call being passive progressive. Well, you're not wrong, you, you but it is it is incredibly positive. It, I will is say it that. one of those films where you could cut out their story and air the other two segments without hurting the, f- the film at large? I, I mean, the plot where, might where still can, technically can, like, function, but the movie would hurt because it would be incredibly thin. They have a lot of screen time. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Like you, technically, you'd have a movie, but it would like, be a much worse movie. There, there's been a lot of of the phenomenon where 
queer characters are queer in like a scene, and then that scene and is that, easily that removable, can be, uh, so it can be and it's, played and it's, in China yeah, it is, or whatever. It, yeah, it's designed to be lifted out and played in homophobic countries. I know, I know. Well, first off, I don't think Hallmark is particularly concerned about that. They're mostly playing to an American audience, yeah. but. Regardless, no, they're in the whole movie, basically. Right. And I think you would actually have real trouble cutting that out of the film. Um, but I, I, and, and, and again, it's not their story exclusively. It's in a family ensemble drama, not unlike The Happiest Season, in which there's a bunch of different characters. Hmm. So this would be like you could cut Alison Brie and her husband out of The Happiest Season, but the movie wouldn't be as strong for it because that's part of the tapestry of the family. Okay. See what I mean? So it's, I agree. It, it's, we're overdue to just have one that's just about a gay couple. Yeah. That's 100% true. By God, that's 100% true. But this is actually still pretty good. So um, the movie starts off great because it opens where our protagonist uh, is a lawyer and he is giving his final closing argument in a courthouse that is decked out for Christmas. There's a wreath on the judge's podium. (laughs) And in the end, he like solves the crime in the middle of his closing argument. And then uh, he like turns to the camera and says, you're out of order. And then base and then it says, like, for your consideration, like J- Johnny, like handsome lawyer. That's the name of the show. It's a show within a show. Okay. It's called handsome lawyer. And he plays Johnny handsome, a lawyer oh who's handsome. And that's his whole thing. But the problem is, is that they don't know if the show is going to get picked up after mid season. So he's kind of in limbo and he doesn't know what to do. And that's when he gets a call from his parents. His dad is played by treat Williams. Uh, his mom is played by, I think it's Sharon Lawrence or NY. Yeah. Sharon Lawrence, of NYPD blue treat Williams, treat Williams. All right. And they say, Hey, listen, uh, I know you're doing your big Hollywood thing, but, um, your mom and I have been talking. We're doing the Christmas house. We haven't done Christmas house in years. I know. But it's coming back. We need you now. And son's like, okay. It sounds, it sounds incredibly threatening. I know. It's hilarious. So he and uh, his brother, who is played by Jonathan Bennett, uh, who I, I believe is married to a man and they're trying to adopt, uh, they immediately race home because this family, it, it used to do it every single year. Hmm. They gut their whole house, move it out into like storage and they deck it out within an inch of its life for Christmas. And it becomes a tourist attraction for the neighborhood. Yeah. Not like a haunted house, but the idea is like, it's a big fucking deal. So all of a sudden they have this massive project and they have thousands upon thousands of lights to put up and like a tree for every room in the house. And it's basically this adorable, well-written charming family hanging out dealing with each other's problems and doing cute Christmas stuff except Mm -hmm. every once in a while there's a piece of dramatic foreshadowing because mom and dad keep talking about how we have to do Christmas house this year it might be our last chance Oh, no, somebody dying. And every once in a while, people will say, like, oh, I'm so glad we get to have the family here for Christmas. And maybe we can do this again next year. And then the camera, like, cuts to mom, like, slowly drinking a glass of wine while the music gets a little dramatic. And then there's another scene where the guy, uh, the guy goes back to his (laughs) bed. Oh, God, is there a moment like, sure, we will, Mr. Simpson. Sure, we will. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's so dramatic. And we're watching this movie. My wife and I are watching this movie. It's so intense. 
Hmm. And we're like, what's going to happen next? And then there's like a scene where like the dude goes back to his childhood bedroom and uh, he sees that dad left his watch in here. It's like, why would dad leave his watch in here? And mom's just like, oh, no, it's nothing. He probably just forgot it. (coughs) (laughs) And like, oh, God, God. his mom dying and dad's like has deteriorating mental health. What's going on? Oh God, this is, they're so wonderful and they're so funny and charming. And I love all of these people. And it turns out mom and dad are getting separated. Oh, but it's a, a very, a very away from her Christmas. It's such a dramatic buildup. It is so fucking intense. And then it turns out they might be moving out. And here's the thing that's amazing. Hmm. They're they're splitting up. Dad's been retired for a few years. Mom is just retired. And it turns out that they're they're going to split up. They're going to get separated and possibly divorced. And you think to yourself, okay, well, what's what happened? What's so dramatic? And it turns out that uh, mom like lived for her job. And uh, when dad got retired a few years before her, he took up a variety of hobbies. And now she, when she's retired, doesn't have any hobbies. So they got to move out. Mm. What? <laughs> what the fuck is this? What are you talking about? She's like, she's like, you keep going hiking. And I'm like, take her hiking. What the shit? What's what's wrong with you? You have no problems. This wouldn't even be solved by couples therapy. This would be solved by like calling into Frazier's radio show for five minutes. Mm-hmm. And he would just set you straight. It's like, go hiking. What the shit? And that's the thing that's frustrating about it Because it feels like it would have been stronger If there were real stakes But this is Hallmark And so no matter what the setup is And I wouldn't be surprised if the original story had those stakes And all those things are vestigial remnants of an earlier draft Because In the end Everything has to get resolved really tidily Right Really tidily It's a Hallmark film They don't It's not like how might as hair are run amok and everybody just dies at the yeah, end. Yeah, no, it's not going to be like, oh, God, you know, we're going to have a tearful, you know, <gasps> last moment with dad before he passes away. Why does Chris Kringle run amok? <laughs> That's another That's, thing I love. Uh, That's another thing I love about this movie. And uh, uh, this is a minor spoiler. Hmm. Uh, this is the first Hallmark movie I've seen in, in years. Maybe I missed one. I'll put out a lot. But this is the first one I've seen in years where there's a character who may wink may have been Santa Claus the whole time. (laughs) That used to be a regular thing, that there was a character, usually a guy with the beard, who may be Santa Claus. Then again, he may not. But he knows things that only Santa Claus would know. And at key points in the story, he just sort of disappears from the room, Hmm. and then there's a shooting star or some shit, and it suddenly starts to (laughs) snow. My favorite one of those is a shooting star or some shit. My favorite one of those is like probably the only truly great Candace Cameron Beret one of these mm. uh, with it's called Christmas Under Wraps, where she plays um, a, uh, a med student who uh, only applied to like one internship at a hospital because it's the only hospital she wanted to go to, which she didn't get it. Mm. So she has to get whatever she can take. She gets to take whatever she can get. And she ends up going to like Nome, Alaska. And it turns out that the small town and it's not no, but small town in Alaska, uh, the only industry that they have supporting the town is one toy factory. And it's run by memory serves Brian Doyle Murray. And uh, yeah, he's fucking Santa Claus, but they never say it. They never say he's Santa Claus, but we all know the truth. (laughs) Just say he's Santa. Just say he's Santa. 
<coughs> Excuse me. I think I killed my voice. Um, <laughs> anyway, Christmas House. Uh, it's actually very charming. It's All a legitimately right. charming, really wonderful cast. The ending this is a total cop out. If, if Christmas House were a, a sequel to House, yeah, like the fifth Which, film in the House series, then wait, I'd be okay with it. Are we talking about House, the 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 nineteen eighties American movie, or the Japanese movie either, House MD, the Doctor series? Not the Doctor series. Okay, I, either the eighties horror series, which has four films in it to date. Yeah. You just make Christmas house. I'm fine with that. Yeah. That makes sense. Why not? I've, I've, I haven't seen the fourth one. I've only seen the first three of those houses. I've movies. only seen the first two. Yeah. yeah. And, the, and the third one is called The Horror Show, so you might not know it's House 3. But it's, it's not supposed technically. To be house three. Like, it is, but it isn't. Yeah. Well, but the next film was House 4, so there never was a film called House 3. <laughs> it's a little, little you bonkers. Jerks. <laughs> you jerks. All right. Anyway, uh, those are the new releases for the week. We will now review them all on the critically acclaimed scale. Once again, that scale is as follows. We rate movies on a scale of C- to C+. Mm. Most movies are average. An average is a C. That's how grades work. Below average is a C-. Everything from we just kind of don't recommend it to the worst movie ever, C-. Mm. C- is above average. And that's we legitimately recommend it, possibly as far as the greatest motion picture ever made. So uh, mm. on the critically acclaimed scale... The Christmas House. Here's the problem. <laughs> and you, you address it yourself. Yeah. Do we do we rate this on the Hallmark scale or the actual movie scale? Mm. On the Hallmark scale, this is a C plus. <laughs> compared Definite, to other Hallmark movies. Compared yeah. to other Hallmark movies, this is upper echelon Hallmark. This uh. is pretty good. Uh Compared to regular movies, it's a comfortable C. Okay. And maybe even a high C, because it's just, again, the cast is really cute, and, and it, it's yeah. very fun to watch. I'm glad they finally, finally, way too late in the game, but finally did feature a gay couple as yeah. lead characters. And they're wonderful, and they talk... Uh, 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 Jonathan Bennett has a great speech about how, you know, the, the travails that they have had about mm. trying to adopt have made him grow and become a better person and everything like that. It's a good, it's a good subplot. Mm. It would be nice if it was the A plot, I agree. But they, I think it's handled pretty well, near as I can tell. Um, so anyway, C on a regular scale, C plus on the Hallmark scale. Uh, porno. Uh, porno. Uh, it, it's, it, it's a C, but it is not an, an impassioned C at all. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think it's a wash. I've, I've seen some really awful films on Shudder yeah. uh, from the Shudder originals, and I feel like this one... Um, is is the latest in uh, what I guess can be called the Shutter House style. They've done mm. a, a lot of different kinds of movies. They also did the films like Revenge and Mandy and things that are really kind of daring. Mm. Which were not made but, by them. They were picked no. up by them, like festivals and things. But yeah, but they're, they but clearly the, are attracted to certain kinds of movies. Yeah, and this this bears a little bit more resemblance to that Critters series they did oh. in terms of it's like crass, dumb humor. Okay. And, and, yeah, it's and, probably, I'd say and, that's about right. And silly gore. That's about right, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm actually just trying to remember if I gave it a C minus or a C when it came out. Mm. I think I veered on the edge of C minus. Okay. Um, where it's, it's hardly the worst horror comedy I've ever seen, but ultimately I don't think it really came together. But I do appreciate the elements that you yeah, liked. I, I think I, you I liked like them the, more than I did. Yeah, I think the, the setting <laughs> brings it a lot of, a, a long way in my eye, but I did explain my prejudice. All right. Uh, Zappa. Uh, Zappa is a C. Uh, I, I, it's it's exha exhaustively researched. It's very loving, and I think it does a really great job of explaining who Zappa 
example was. I just uh, wish it had gone a little further. I wish there were more to it, a little exploring a little bit more facets than wasn't Zappa great. Okay, uh, Lovers Rock. Uh, this is a C plus. This, this is C+. one of the best movies I've seen yeah. all year. For, right up there. For sure, I agree with you. This is one of, one of the best films of this year. Um, if, if these if these things continue apace, I'm so exhilarated. I'm just happy yeah. to keep on seeing and, and Steve if, McQueen. And honestly, if this is as good as it gets, that's fine. We got Lovers yeah. Rock. It's an incredibly <laughs> beautiful, incredibly immersive motion picture. Hmm. And um, it's it's a side of, honestly... Again, I didn't see Mangrove, and I haven't seen, like, everything he's ever done, but this is, like, the most, like, warm I've ever seen Steve McQueen. Mm. Like, this is just lovely. Yeah. I feel like he's led us into his heart. Um, okay, uh, what, we, what was next? Oh, The Happiest Season. Uh, Happiest Season is a C. Okay. Uh, I, I thought I liked a lot in it. I think Kristen Stewart is great. I think... Uh, she and Mackenzie Davis have a very believable relationship. I've heard a lot of people saying they don't have good chemistry together. No, it's they, fine. They it's, do fine. Just the majority of the plot is about it's it's about straining how, that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's about how one sided that relationship turns out to be. So I think yeah. it actually plays incredibly well. Um, yeah. And yeah, a, a really harrowing uh, queer rom- uh, holiday romantic drama comedy is actually mm. a really good experiment, but. It does wrap up way too tightly. I, I can appreciate that. I ultimately like the way it wrapped up. I don't think the wrap up undermines what came before. Mm. Is it a little uh, optimistic? Sure, but that didn't bother me. So I'm giving it a C plus. Okay. I think uh, the cast is wonderful. I think it's very sharp. Mm. Uh, I think it is not afraid to take a romantic comedy setup and go to some unpleasant places. And I think wanting to pull back from that towards the end and not have it go completely emotionally apocalyptic mm. is not an unreasonable thing to do. So I actually like the way that they handled it. Uh, I think it's very, very sweet. And then uh, finally, Hillbilly Elegy. That, that, that's a... Uh... It's a big donut. Uh, it's, it's a it's a it's a dispassionate C minus to me. It's not good. Um, I, I, I it's just I, I can't hate it because it doesn't do anything like hateable. It just ends up feeling insincere and fake. Yeah, it, it's it's just uh, it's the worst kind of uh, bad thudding Hollywood Oscar bait. And uh, yeah, just it it's after a while it does get sort of painful to watch about how how. Um, Corny it gets. Yeah. Alright. Well, uh, those are the new releases for this week. Thank you everybody for listening to those. Now it is time to emerge into the critically acclaimed streaming club, where once again, every week Whitney and I delve into one particular streaming service and pick out a film that one or both of us mm. have never seen before. Or rather, we pick out four such films and let our patrons decide which one we're gonna review over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, again, this week, all of the options were on Ovid.tv, which, again, is like Criterion on steroids. <laughs> it's like, it's like Criterion like, without those pesky classics everyone's heard of. <laughs> yeah, it's Criterion, but Criterion's sold out, man. Yeah. But yeah, yeah like, a, oh, my God, symbiotoxic, psychotoxic taxoplasm. Symbios- that's for cowards. <laughs> Symbiopsychotaxoplasm. Piff. Yeah. Wait. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize we were going all Hollywood. No. Oh, you, have, oh, you only have all nine hours of the human condition. <laughs> <laughs> So Although, yeah, ironically, ironically, the movie that we're watching now is also on the Criterion Collection. Uh, 
which I, I don't think I knew at the time. I didn't yeah, know I, actually, it's uh, what I'm, I'm. If you look around, a watermelon woman is is pretty easy to find. You can find mm-hmm. it on uh, Canopy. I well, think it's on like Pluto. It was. And it TV had a. And, uh, it had a. De- it had like a proper uh, like restoration, like a 20 year anniversary mm. uh, restoration. Uh, this is a movie from 1996. Uh, it is, and it, and it is the 1996 Oh my god! <laughs> this is a fucking time. This is more yeah. like we just did like a whole episode of our show episode zero a couple months ago about the Kevin Smith movie Clerks, mm. which a lot of it takes place at like a video store. And we were talking about how nineties it is clerks wishes it was as nineties as the watermelon woman in terms of its, uh, just its fashion, the tone of its conversation, Mm -hmm. the kinds of things it was talking about and the places it was set. It doesn't get much more nineties than this. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was, uh, created by, uh, Cheryl Dunier, who, while she was, uh, doing, uh, some research into, uh, black actresses of the 1930s mm-hmm. found that their credits weren't included in a lot of movies or if they were included racism or if they the, were included sometimes they were given these like stage names which were fundamentally like racist yeah. or dehumanizing um and uh, yeah so there's this entire giant chapter of black cinema history which is you can see it in the movies if the movie again, there's a lot of lost movies out there, but if you can see the movies, they're out there, but it's actually not curated and there isn't a lot to discover. There aren't a lot of biographies. These stories were not told very well or taken care of. So and the, now it's almost impossible to find out who these people were and what their lives were like. And uh, and as such, the, the history of black women in Hollywood has been effectively erased. Yeah. It's going to take a lot of deep cuts and a lot of research just to find out who some of those people are, much less their stories. So Cheryl Dunier essentially decided to come up with, uh, to to fill in the gaps herself. Yeah. So she plays essentially herself. Mm -hmm. Uh, Character named Cheryl. Young young woman uh, in Philadelphia. She works video store, is interested in being a filmmaker, makes ends meet by doing like videography projects for like weddings. Yeah, she does weddings or or, or films like small concerts and things. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And uh, while she's doing that, she's uh, really intrigued by an actress she sees in an old film who is just called in the credits, The Watermelon Woman. Yeah. That's that's her credit. And she has to figure out who this person is. So there's a lot of uh, staged interviews. Uh, It is all scripted. Yeah. There's some the the watermelon woman of the title and the movies that she is in are actually not real. Yeah, they're they're clearly of a piece like you would believe perhaps Mm. that they were real or that certainly that they're inspired by by real movies. But this is, again, the history of these people uh, who were in these movies that's not available. So in order to tell the story, she kind of had to make one up. Um, so yeah, as part of it is this mockumentary of her investigating, talking to people who were, were, uh, knew her or were fans of the film scene, or maybe knew the music scene at the time and trying to uncover the history of this woman who was not only, uh, a, a black actress in the golden age of Hollywood. She was also a singer, and it turns out she was also queer. She, she was having an affair with the director she worked with the most. Yeah, and this uh, was and this was, what, a what was white. The, what, what was the name of the fake director? Oh, it was so, um, it was like Maggie something. So, um, and uh, and this uh, a Martha Page. Martha Martha Page was the fake director. Yeah, and this and uh, that director was white, so that's another reason why it's this incredible, mm. you know, story because 
that was very mm-hmm. taboo at the time, and that wouldn't have been part of the public conversation. So it's another reason why their story was mm. buried by history. Yeah, yeah. But uh, in between all of these bouts of research, where she's learning about uh, the, the history of uh, black queer women in the 1930s and trying to find like what little bits of uh, of information she can. She is also, uh, and this is like the nineties, ninetieth part of it mm-hmm. is just sort of having conversations and trying to work out her own love life. Mm-hmm. And, uh, one of the customers in the video store, and we see right away that they're, these two women are like intensely attracted to one another, mm-hmm. uh, begin having an affair. Yeah. Uh, and, and, it, and it's such a nineties scene because mm-hmm. Cheryl Denier, she's like, putting VHS VHS is away to video store. Mm-hmm. And Guinevere Turner, who is uh, yeah, works uh, with Mary Harris screenwriter. Yeah. She, she wrote the screenplay to American psycho. She also wrote the screenplay to Uva Bull's blood rain. She's got an interesting <laughs> career. She's done a lot of acting. Mm. She's done a lot of writing. I have a lot of respect for, uh, but uh, it's this incredibly 90s scene in which Cheryl Denier, uh walks up to Guinevere Turner and she can't decide what to rent. Mm. And uh, Cheryl Denier recommends Cleopatra Jones. And as a chaser, Carrie and Guinevere Turner is just like, yeah, I don't know about Carrie. So he's like, okay, fine. Repulsion. Roman Polanski's <laughs> repulsion. Wow. What a 90s scene. Um, and and what, what I love is that one of the films she asks, should I see personal best? That's another uh, queer film. Yeah. And they, they don't really like roll with that. It's like, Oh no. See aliens instead. <laughs> we don't need to watch personal best. We're not roll. We don't need to just, Watch personal best over and over again. It's like, yeah. We also like to watch aliens. It's fine. Uh, Sheldon Yang, Guinevere Turner uh, have a romantic relationship over the course of the film. It ends up being very sexual. This ends up being a very sexual film. Mm. Uh, there was nudity. In fact, the movie actually got in trouble over how sexual it was because this received, mm. I believe, public funding. And then because some critic pointed out that the sex scene was particularly uh, uh, revealing and erotic. Mm. Uh, they, they're was, actually, they actually like do sex things on camera. Yeah. It's not just like it's not it's silhouettes not, and it's smoky not it's not X rated, but it is definitely very sexual. Mm. And as a result of this, uh, the movie was accused of you know sort of misappropriating funds for lurid purposes, and at, that became a whole thing. That's some straight up bullshit. This is mm. a be- it's a beautiful scene actually. Um, however, this whole relationship that Cheryl has uh, with uh, Gwyneth Turner's character, Diana ends up putting her at odds with her best friend, uh, uh, Tamara, uh, who sees her as, who sees Diana as kind of a bougie poseur. Yeah. She, well, and who, and yeah, and she kind of is. And this, this I think goes to a, a lot of where the conversation was about racial relations in the nineties, uh, about how, the conversation was essentially, let's see how much of this we can just get past. And when we see some malfeasance, we're going to call it out. That's what we're going through today as well. Uh, so when it tur- it turns out, okay, we're, I'm going to have, the, have a relationship with this rich white woman, and that should be fine, right? But if she has made, if the white woman has made it a point of... Uh, essentially becoming uh, sort of this charitable uh, caretaker for disenfranchised black people. And she's a performative and, ally. Yeah, she wants to be seen doing exact, it. Exactly. Performative yeah. ally. Exactly. She, yeah. uh, or uh, 
also has reached the point where she's kind of fetishizing a lot of her lovers for their race. And that, yeah. that makes Cheryl Dunier really uncomfortable through the conversations she has with another black friend. Well, it all comes to a head when they uh, interview um, the sister, because uh, the director, Martha Page, is no longer alive. And they interview uh, her uh, uh, sister hmm. and her sister wants to deny the possibility uh, that her sister was queer. Mm. And Cheryl Denier gets really confrontational about that and says, no, there's all this like documented evidence. There's books written about this mm. and your sister is named. And it's, it, this is pretty common knowledge. How can you deny this? And Diana is there in that scene. And she's basically just saying, well, no, hold on. You know, it's not like she's not being an ally when it's uncomfortable. Mm. Only when it's comfortable is she being an ally. Yeah. And that's something that ultimately parallels what uh, uh, the the watermelon woman who's and whose name is a Faye. Um, oh, uh, Faye Richards, Faye Richards. I want to say Robertson, Faye Richards. Um, it actually ends up paralleling a lot of what Faye Richards was going through, which is that she had this relationship mm-hmm. uh, with a white woman who had, you know, through socioeconomic and indeed um, in, you know, in the industry, more power and clout. Uh, a relationship that ended up being one-sided and not helping her. And we learn through the woman that Faye spent most of her life with that that's part of her life is something that she actually didn't cherish and ultimately looks down upon as though, like, yeah, I had my film career and I had to take these demeaning roles because that's all the person yeah, I, yeah. I who allegedly cared about me was willing to give me. But I love how Cheryl Denier ends up ending the film where she just ultimately makes a speech where she's just like, that's fair. But I, a future generation, look back on that work differently. Mm-hmm. And the person who was appreciating the art ended up getting something out of her making the most out of those demeaning roles and actually emerging even from those roles as a person of strength. And yeah. that ultimately ties into the film's ultimate yeah. you know, power, which is that women of color and queer people in particular, uh, queer women of color in particular, sorry, uh, they were so marginalized and their stories were so untold that it, we're looking for the heroes. Yeah. We're looking yeah, for those she, stories. Those stories matter even if they're not perfect stories. She, she had to con- construct it herself. Yeah. Um, and I I think that point is really underlined by the fact that they get a blowhard critic in there, uh, played by Camille Paglia, yeah! who's kind of playing herself, but it's clearly also giving a scripted performance. Yeah, she's giving this weird... It's actually... A, Camille Paglia has said some stuff I don't always agree with, but I... I, <laughs> I, I the thing with Camille Paglia I, is... I really, I really admire Camille Paglia, and I like being mad at her. And I think she would appreciate that. Yeah, she, she's going to be very confrontational. Mm. And I, and I think she's an important counterpoint to a lot of other mm. feminist viewpoints. Uh, but um, she gives this weird speech mm. about how these demeaning characters are actually like godlike and like, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like elevated. Mm. Um, and she ends up comparing it to like her, her experience her as an Italian, Italian American. And it's such it, bullshit. It's, it's like the tackiest possible criticism. Yeah. And yeah, that 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 uh, Cheryl Dunier is talking to this this like 
well-established feminist critic played by Camille Paglia, yeah. who I think is named Paglia in the movie. So she, you she might named her, she's playing herself. Yeah, just so, a comedic version of yeah, her. Yeah. So she's clearly like putting on airs, but yeah, yeah. that this is the kind of thing that she's been butting up against from, quote, the intelligentsia this whole time. Yeah. It's like, oh no, the treatment of these characters was fine because actually if you look at these degrading roles, they're really elevated. Shut up. <laughs> Shut up. Until you're a queer black woman, I don't want to hear it. Uh, my, however, I do want to say that I, th- perhaps the biggest scene stealer in the movie is mm. Sarah Shulman. Uh, mm. Sarah Shulman is a, a very prominent uh, uh, queer author, and she plays uh, oh, the she- head of the uh, of the Center for Lesbian Information and Technology. <laughs> which I will let you, I, I will. I was going to let people <laughs> assemble right. that acronym for themselves, right. but you already did it. Mm. Um, which is like basically people just bringing all of their queer history, but they don't have the money to like archive it properly. So, so everything's just, just in boxes. Just this big pile of lesbian ephemera yeah. in a big room. She is hilarious. Her dialogue <laughs> is funny. Her delivery is funny. I was actually surprised to learn that she hasn't acted that much because no, she's, well, she, she's an actual archivist. And activist, oh, I know. But like, but yeah. I kind of thought like maybe after this, people would just put her in a few more indies or whatever. Mm-hmm. She's worked with Cheryl Denier. She's uh, co-written uh, some work that she's done, including the owls and mommy is coming, which I haven't seen. And now I really want to. Um, but uh, she's really funny. <laughs> like it's, it's the comedy highlight of the movie and the movie is, is, um, you know, it, it tackles difficult subjects, but I was actually impressed by how airy it feels. It's yeah. actually very light and feels very, um, very slice of life in a lot of ways. And this is where it feels really 90s. A lot of like mm-hmm. shots of like street performers against brick walls and people just hanging out in video stores with, you know, just camera angles that get the action but aren't trying to impress you, you know? Yeah, like it's, it's, it's just Sean, feels it's very Sean, very normal and yeah, earthy and lived in and I think that's very powerful here. Yeah, and it's and it's I think it's shot on video even. It's like really mm. really lo-fi. It has a lot of uh, We'll see if I can find that out actually. Yeah. I don't know. But what what format it was I'll, shot I'll on. see if that's available, I don't know. But yeah, it was clearly shot on on a shoestring and they're they're confronting ideas. But yeah, it's they're they're confronting ideas. Listen to me. It was shot on video and sixteen millimeter. Video on sixteen. Okay. Right. Um, I, I, I imagine the old, like the old uh, fake films that they were shooting were yeah. on sixteen. Uh, yeah, and they and to and I think to their credit, they actually do a really good job of creating like a photographic record mm. of this fake actor and her career and it's pretty convincing Mm -hmm. like the movies themselves are a little fakey and i and i glommed pretty fast that some of them weren't weren't real uh but uh it's the they're not that far off the mark Right. And I've definitely but seen movies that are very much like them. And, and we, were, so. we, were, we were complaining how something like Hillbilly Elegy feels really inauthentic. But I think even though this banks with imaginary movies mm-hmm. and an imaginary star, it still is getting its point across. Yeah. And again, this has <clears throat> the, that added buffer of being it's still a comedy. Yeah. Um, it's not the wackiest comedy ever, but there's it's still got humor in it. There's still jokes. Well, it, it, it's not that it has jokes. It's that it's about funny people. Well, that's a big part of the, it. They, these people have you. They are intelligent and they have senses of humor and they're allowed to kind of joke with one another. Um, I think that's something a lot of makers of comedies forget. They try to 
create a scenario rather than just making the people funny and have them be funny with one another. I feel like what they try to do now is they try to have the people be funny, but only get that across by letting them like riff. Fortunately, we've moved away from that a bit, but there was a long Mm. period in the 2010s in particular. And I think Judd Apatow is largely responsible for this, where a lot of comedy would be, uh, okay, so we have a scene in which uh, someone's wearing a funny hat. Okay, uh, we've got three professional comedians here. Every one of them is going to do five minutes of riffing, and we'll pick the best two minutes from each. And we're going to stop the movie dead <laughs> so that they can each do their bit. Mm. There's a difference between that and actually scripted dialogue in which the characters behave in a good way. And yeah, you can still get ad-libbing, that's fine. But, you know, here it's, it's good, strong mm. writing here. Um, again, it feels loose. It feels uh, there, there's I don't want to call it amateurish because it's clearly very, in, very mm. carefully put together. But it feels but it's, it's very r- rumpled and scrappy. It feels yeah, it feels scrappy. It feels like a 90s independent movie where someone just had the passion, had something to say and just shot it and just shot it. Mm. And, you know, and again, they weren't going for the best cinematography Oscar. They wanted to shoot it and make it feel natural and lived in. They wanted people to recognize that location. I've been in that building, even if I've never been it was in Philadelphia. Yeah, I've never been in Philadelphia, but I've been in that video store. I've been yeah, to that house. Yeah. I know there that a- vibe. <laughs> There's a, a shot early in the movie where Cheryl Dunier is just standing at the desk at this little rinky-dink video store where she works, and there's a, a rack of videos right next to her. I could identify every single one of the oh, films of on that rack. Same here. I even took a picture. Oh, look, there's Warlock, the Armageddon. I remember renting that Oof. a couple times. It's not a good movie. Um, I like the I, I like, the, but I like the image in my head of Cheryl Dunier watching Warlock. Warlock the Armageddon. Armageddon. I would kill. I would pay. So much money to hear a commentary track of Cheryl Denier doing a commentary track for Warlock the Armageddon. It doesn't have to be. I just want to. You can you can digress, mm. Cheryl. I know you're listening. You no, can she, digress because Cheryl Denier is clearly a big fan of ours. Surely, I, I apologize if we haven't done your work the credit it deserves. It's an incredible motion picture, but it's I really, also it, um, it's. I'm so glad I finally saw this movie, yeah, and I want to thank this is a uh, piece of education I missed out on. And I want to thank B. Of. Peterson for uh, making sure that this movie got you know on our list of movies to get to soon. Yeah. And I want to thank all of our patrons for voting for it. Um, uh, B. Peterson, by the way, recently co-hosted the most recent episode of Cancel Too Soon, all about Quibi, because I wasn't able to do the research before Quibi just collapsed like a flan in a cupboard, and you can't get that flan back. Yeah. Um, B. Peterson did a great job. I just want to say thanks again because uh, that's a really, really good episode of Cancel Too Soon, and I hope everyone listens to it, because it's very comprehensive, uh, and I'm just very, very, very happy about it. Um, Okay, so, yeah, Watermelon Woman. It's on Criterion. It's on Ovid.tv. Please see it. It's really good. Also, Uh, just watch stuff on Ovid. Yeah. Uh, Whitney Whitney endorses the entire service, Mm -hmm. apparently, so... I, I haven't seen all the movies on Ovid. Well, Whitney yeah, has, if, I guess. If, if, well, I've, I've, just a couple, but um, but you appreciate their ethos. I, I appreciate, yeah. The the it's it's just good programming, and uh, I feel like if even though there's a lot of uh, entertainment options out there, they do sometimes feel a little limited. Uh, you, I, I can watch ten thousand movies for free, yeah, but I don't want to watch Netflix originals. Mm-hmm. I don't want to watch the garbage they have on HBO. Fair enough. But if if you want, yeah, if you want, you know, five hour Filipino epics, uh, then <laughs> then boy, how do they got you covered? They're the best game in town. Yeah. Uh, next time on critically acclaimed, we'll be viewing a bunch of new movies. The the new uh, small acts, for example, 
and other things as well. We will also be reviewing another film of the critically acclaimed streaming club. Next week's theme was whatever Whitney wanted on Criterion, because after the one-two punch of Wild Wild West and Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter, I still owed him. So th- thank you for letting me pick. Uh, you, you you suggested the Criterion channel. We're back at Criterion. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I picked four pretty well-known uh, art house classics that I just never saw. Yep. Uh, to catch up on. It ended up being a pretty close race between uh, Andre Rublev. Uh, which is frequently considered one of the best movies ever made. It's uh, a film about a Soviet painter or not Soviet painter. It's a Soviet film about a Russian painter in the Middle Ages. Yes. Uh, And the winner, however, was Brian De Palma's Sisters, which was Brian De Palma's first Hitchcockian thriller. He didn't start out that way. (laughs) He found that later. He did a couple of weird, subversive, like gritty comedies with Robert De Niro first. And then with Sisters, he went full Hitchcock and never went back. Nope. Yep. Pretty much been doing it ever since. Pretty much. Uh, However, it's considered a classic. I haven't seen this movie in nearly 20 years, uh, so I don't remember it very well. I remember liking Mm. it. Wasn't my favorite De Palma at the time, but maybe uh, it truly is his greatest work, as some people have said that it is. I'm I'm a a little bit upset that it wasn't Andre Rublev, but these are all movies I wanted to see. These are all these are all your picks. You cannot blame me for this one. uh, This is all on. You could have also picked Betty Blue or uh, Beau Travai. But yeah, you picked Sisters. So that's the one we're going to be doing. So uh, Sisters available on Criterion if you want to watch it along with us. Criterion Channel is the place to go. Uh, Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, Thank you, everybody, for subscribing. If you haven't already, you're more than welcome to. It's free. Uh, You can also leave us a review that helps us find uh, more of an audience. Uh, If you've already done that, recommend it to a friend. That would be really great. Or if you don't like us, don't. Tell your enemies. It's weird that you've listened to a nearly two-hour podcast if you don't like us, but cool. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's your prerogative. That's, That's fair. Who am I to judge? Uh, we want to give a very special thank you to all of our patrons over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network without whom none of our shows would be possible right now. Uh, and or and really in general, but especially right now. Um, so uh, thank you, everybody, for your contributions. Thank you, everybody, for keeping our shows alive. Uh, we hope you're enjoying the exclusive content over at the critically acclaimed uh, Patreon page. Patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. We recently, uh, for the Thanksgiving weekend, uh, uploaded an entire Star Trek marathon. We have a podcast called All Our Yesterdays, in which uh, we review every single episode of Star Trek ever, one podcast per episode. And uh, we always liked sci-fi marathons for the holidays, so we decided to do a marathon of our Star Trek podcast and released five episodes all at once. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, some people really appreciated that. We're really glad you enjoyed it. And maybe we'll do it again for another holiday sometime. Yeah. Um, but we have other exclusives as well over there. And of course you can always write us. We've got mail is our podcast. Uh, and the email address is letters at critically net. Ask us a question, take us to task, tell us something we didn't know. Uh, whatever, really we're open books, whatever you want to talk about. Uh, we might read your letter on an upcoming episode of we've got mail. We're also on Twitter. Uh, at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I am at Whitney Seibold. And I think that's it. So thank you everybody once again. And never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what? <laughs>